You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Hello, dear listeners, Elizabeth here. Today, we have a very special episode for you. This whole show was written and researched by one of our amazing interns, Olivia Langa. Olivia is a senior at SUNY Brockport, and this episode is based on a research paper that she wrote while taking a course with me. She's also been busy building some of our lesson plans, so please check those out in our educators section at digpodcast.org. As always, the majority of our episodes are based on research by historians. Please go to our website for full bibliographies and transcripts. Now on to the show. They take your very life blood, they take our children's lives, take fathers away from children, and husbands away from wives. Oh, minor, won't you organize wherever you may be, and make this a land of freedom for workers like you and me. Most people, when thinking about coal mining songs, likely think about Loretta Lynn's 1970s song, Coal Miner's Daughter. Born in Kentucky in the 1930s, Lynn sings about what it was like to grow up a coal miner's daughter. Her father worked for a poor man's dollar while her mother stayed home looking after the children and performing household chores. But, as Lynn states, the family did not complain because they shared an abundance of love with one another. Lynn's song provides a romanticized version of the lives of women in coal mining families. Her song is true to her, but it does not provide a universal narrative of Depression-era wives and daughters in Kentucky. To find out more about the everyday lives of women in coal mining families, we must look at the songs of less popular female Appalachian singers from the 1930s. One such place to look is Depression-era Harlan County, located in the southeast corner of Kentucky, situated within 
a valley between the Pine and Black Mountains on the Virginia-Kentucky border. In the early spring, the dogwood, sarvis, and redbud trees bloomed along the dirt pathways that ran up the mountain, and climbing roses grew along the gates and fences of farmhouses. However, the political landscape of Harlan County, beginning in the spring of 1931, did not reflect the beauty of the physical space. As the Great Depression swept the nation, freight prices rose, disrupting Harlan's steady industrial progress. In 1929, the Harlan miners produced $24 million worth of coal, and in 1931, only $13.5 That year, annual wages dropped from $1,235 to $749. The decrease in wages, unemployment, and irregular employment caused, quote, poverty, hunger, and disease. Nearly 4,000 miners working and living in Harlan County, Kentucky, lost their jobs in the Great Depression. Those that kept working made less than 80 cents a day and only worked select days out of the month. After many failed attempts at unionization, the miners and their family created a communist party labor union called the National Miners Union. Local elites despised this action and thought to take down the union. Policemen worked to, quote, disrupt the flow of aid to the miners and their families. Soup kitchens burned, men were attacked in their homes, newspapers labeled the strikers as anti-American, and union workers lost many First Amendment rights. The issue became a bloody war. Elites, policemen, and mine guards versus poor mining families. Skirmishes between the groups occurred until 1939 when a mining union promised safety at work and an escape from the poverty that had consumed generation after generation. These skirmishes became known as the Bloody Harlan Incident, or simply Bloody Harlan. Most of the folklore that came out of Harlan County tells stories of the horror faced by the miners under the foot of the elite. However, three women, Aunt Molly Jackson, Florence Reese and Sarah Ogan Gunning wrote songs in response to the Harlan County upheaval and about the lives of coal mining families. Their work differs from that of the coal mining men because they were not directly involved in coal mining as their occupation. Instead, they occupied spaces within the home and the family unit, bearing responsibilities of domesticity. However, with no money, no food, and the constant threat from outside sources, they carried a tremendous burden. Looking at their songs provides a look into their lives as coal miners' wives and daughters and gives us a look into the devastation they witnessed. The biographies and songs of Reese Jackson and Ogan Gunning have not been viewed as individual and complex narratives alongside the Bloody Harlan incident. Historians often use their songs as background or, you know, fun fact information for the strike. But each woman has her place in the history of Bloody Harlan. An analysis of Depression-era coal mining, women's political participation in the early 20th century, followed by a discussion of the works of the three women, their motivations behind their actions, and the impact of the use of song in political movements help establish their place in 20th century American history. I'm Olivia. And I'm Elizabeth, and we're your historians for this episode of Dig. In her piece, Gender Issues and Organized Labor in the 20th Century American South, Mary E. Fredericks discusses women's roles in organized labor strikes. 
She claims that women in the 20th century South who had motherly characteristics could militarize both men and women into a specific movement. Because of their proximity to men and women, their ability to act in ways that allowed men to save face, maternal women were extremely useful in leading labor strike movements. The appearances and lives of Reese, Jackson, and Ogan Gunning reflect Fredrickson's thesis. Each woman possessed typical maternal appearances with soft features and compassionate dispositions. Each had many children of their own as well. Moreover, the use of song can be extremely effective in bringing people together. Folk music historian Alan Lomax explains uh, that song most frequently takes the place in speech in highly charged situations. Singing brings order in the crowded human space where people join to dance, work, worship, make war, or follow a leader. Here, regularized the response of the gathered individuals and to produce, or better, to reproduce group consensus. Therefore, song, especially a folk song, serves to communicate a common message to a large group. The themes of unity and camaraderie are produced to rally a distinct group of people under a shared cause. Reese, Jackson, and Ogan Gunning, through their gender and forms of communicative expression, possess a unique ability to unite others under a collective effort. Before the incident formally began, the conditions in Harlan laid the foundation for a labor strike. In 1870, a Philadelphia businessman named Edward M. Davis bought 86,000 acres of land in Harlan and the neighboring Bell County to be used as coal fields. By 1910, the Louisville and Nashville Railroad entered Harlan. The presence of the railroad led to the rapid development of the county's coal industry, as operators could transport coal faster and more efficiently. Between 1911 and 1930, the number of employed miners expanded from 169 to 11,920. Additionally, Henry Ford purchased 15 coal mines in Harlan County to have his own dependable supply of coal. During this time, coal mining wages were lower in Harlan than other coal fields because of the lack of competition and union pressure. Harlan County loaders earned 42% less per day than an Illinois miner, 35% less than an Indiana miner, 24% less than an Ohio miner, and 5% less than a Pennsylvania miner. The United Mine Workers, or UMW, dominated unions in the North and had attempted to organize the Kentucky workers at various points in time. The Kentucky coal operators, however, steered the miners away from the union, claiming that they only saw additional union due payments from their members. Additionally, because the Harlan miners were paid so little, coal operators could afford to ship their coal at an extremely low rate. During World War I, the Interstate Commerce Commission, or ICC, imposed a minimal freight rate differential, the minimum rate railroads must charge to operate. This appealed to northern coal consumers. They could purchase Harlan coal for less than they could from the northern coal fields because of these low shipping rates. However, in 1927, the northern UNW successfully petitioned the ICC for a higher southern freight rate differential. As a result, the differential in Harlan was raised from 25 to 35 cents per ton, effective in January of 1929. Northern consumers no longer had an incentive to purchase coal from Harlan County, thus decreasing Harlan's total profit. Additionally, the coal operators had a vital interest in numerous functions of county government. They sought control over levying taxes, the location of highways, 
the circuit court's decision in labor cases and operations of the sheriff and his deputies. To accomplish this, they corrupted the county's political system. Votes were bought, ballot boxes were stuffed and stolen, and fraudulent returns were submitted. Such practices allowed the coal operators to control nearly every aspect of the county's political and economic proceedings. Furthermore, operators controlled the living conditions of the miners and their families. Coal camps, or company towns, housed almost two-thirds of the county's population. The operators agreed to provide a, quote, reasonable amount of social security, but only if the miners and their families did not engage in prostitution, drunkenness, or unionization. To ensure they did not violate any of these provisions, sheriff deputies hid in treehouses, erected near the entrance of the coal camps, and watched the residents' every move. Those who acted against the operators were violently removed from the camps. Additionally, the operators controlled what newspapers entered the company towns, prohibiting the popular Knoxville News Sentinel because it was critical of the mine owners. Located in the coal camps was a company store. Most coal operators required their workers and residents to purchase groceries, clothing, and other supplies only at the company store. In 1931, a New York Times reporter found that miners gave nearly all their profits back to the company store, while the operators made 170% of their profit back in the store that year. Wow. After the Great Depression began, coal miners were required to work overtime without receiving any additional pay. On average, the men earned seven hours pay after working nine to 12 hours. By March of 1931, operators officially reduced wages by 10%. This, coupled with the ununion activity and the operators' control of local functions, irritated the Harlan County miners. However, it was not until UMW Vice President Philip Murray came to Harlan and urged organization that the miners considered going on strike. Murray held a rally in which Harlan and Bell County miners attended. The mine operator's spies, though, also attended and wrote down the name of all the attendees. The next morning, the mine's foreman ordered these miners out of the camp, leaving them without proper provisions. Most of the miners took their families to a town called Everts. As a result, Everts' population soared from 1,500 to 5,000. The evicted miners occupied vacant houses, garages, barns, and sheds provided by sympathetic miners, families, and independent merchants, who hoped unionization would bring an end to the company store's monopoly. A small union formed in Everts, and the members marched to surrounding coal camps on the weekends to recruit new members. Thousands of miners then were fired or went on strike in sympathy with the evicted miners. As more joined the movement, the county's poverty rate rose. Coal is purchased by the ton, so with less people mining, less coal was being produced. As a result, operators paid their workers even less than before. The local government called in the Red Cross for assistance, but the organization did not give food to union members or affiliates. The Red Cross and the coal operators felt that the striking miners and their families did not deserve any relief because they refused work. As the striking miners' hunger grew, they looted grocery and company stores. The presence of mine guards and Sheriff J.H. Blair's deputies, or gun thugs, as the miners called them, served to increase tensions even further. To showcase their frustration, the miners attacked the deputies that arrested the Union men. However, on May 5, 1931, the miners instigated what became known as the Battle of Everts. Attempting to stop a group of mine guards from transporting miners' personal effects out of the town, 
A group of 75 miners stormed and fired upon the company vehicles. The miners shot and killed the drivers of three cars leaving the town. J.H. Blair sent deputies to Everts, ordering them to arrest any men bearing arms. Anarchy continued through the town as the miners tore through in search of the gun thugs. Thousands of shots were fired. Many of the miners were left to bleed out. The Battle of Everts reflected the miners' frustration and desperation. Their families were starving, the coal operators refused to recognize the Union, and the deputies abused the power given to them. After the Battle of Everts, only Harlan miners joined the strike. Within one week, 5,800 miners went on strike, leaving less than 1,000 working. These striking miners united under the Communist-led National Miners Union, or NMU. For the remainder of the decade, town elites believed unionization was synonymous with violence. Miners continued to fight for the recognition of their union, while coal operators and local government officials ignored their pleas. The number of miners murdered by the mine guards or sheriff's deputies remains unknown. However, we have the records and experiences of those who lived through the strike and terror to gain insight on what happened in Harlan and how it affected the common people. Florence Reese's song, Which Side Are You On?, quickly became the anthem to the union movement in Harlan County. She was inspired to write the piece after the deputy sheriff ransacked her home in search of her husband, Sam. In anger, she ripped a sheet out of her calendar and wrote the lyrics for Which Side Are You On? Come on, you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? We're starting our good battle. We know we're sure to win because we've got the gun thugs looking very thin. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Come all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how that good old union has come here to dwell. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? We are starting our good battle. We know we're sure to win because we've got the gun thugs are looking very thin. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? You go to Harlan County. There is no neutral there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? They say they have to guard us to educate their child. Their children live in luxury. Our children are almost wild. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Gentlemen, can you stand it? Oh, tell me how you can. Will you be a gun thug or will you be a man? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? My daddy was a miner. He's now in the air and sun. He'll be with you fellow workers till every battle's won. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Now all of you know which side you're on, and they'll never keep us down. Florence Reese was born in 1900 in a small Tennessee coal mining town. Her father died in a coal mining accident when she was 14 years old. The following year, she met Sam Reese, a young miner from Tennessee. Her mother opposed the marriage, but the young couple ran away from home, crossed state lines into Kentucky, and married without her mother's blessing. By 1931, the year the strike began, Sam and Florence Reese lived on the side of Big Black Mountain in southeast Kentucky with their seven children. Sam was one of the lead organizers for the United Mine Workers of America, which made him a target for Blair and his henchmen. Sam knew the risk to his life and his families if he stayed in the house with them, so he ran off to hide in the mountains. 
In search of Sam, five carloads full of sheriff's deputies arrived at the Reese home, where Florence and her children were alone. The deputies ransacked the home with rifles in search of Sam and his radical literature. In response to this incident, Florence wrote, Which side are you on? to the tune of the Baptist hymn, Lay the Lily Low. Later, Reese recalled the confrontation in an interview with Mountain Life and Work. She said, When the thugs were raiding our house off and on and Sam was run off, I felt like I just had to do something to help. The little children, they'd have little legs and a big stomach. Some men staggered when they walk. They were so hungry. We didn't even have any paper. So when I wanted to write which side are you on, I just jerked the calendar off the wall and sat down and wrote the words down on the back. Reese recorded the song officially later in life, her voice shrill and tired. Unaccompanied by any instrumentals or harmony, her song is more of a declaration with a clear message. The miners must join the union and fight against the oppressive forces. Although she's asking the listener, which side are you on, she makes it clear that the decision is one of life or death. The miners must join the union or meet a sorrowful end, as her father did. Although the sentiments present in the song are based on her personal trauma, her message appealed to both men and women involved in the strike. First, she rallied the miners by stating the thugs are looking thin, suggesting that union miners were making strides in the movement. However, her next stanzas evoke a sense of pity and misery that did not directly relate to the battles themselves. She painted a picture of the wild children of the miners, juxtaposing their lives to that of the luxurious upper class. For their children to be wild suggests that they are dirty and hungry, scrounging around the country for food and clothes, while the children of the elites received educations. Reese then brings in the image of her father, who died in a mining accident. Although he is in the air and sun, he will fight alongside the union workers until their goals are achieved. Again, her song is rooted in highly personal experiences. However, many of the women in Harlan experienced her pain as well. With their fathers, brothers, husbands, and sons working in the coal fields, these women lived with the constant fear of mining-related accidents while attempting to care for a family on extremely low wages. As Aunt Molly Jackson walked the streets of Harlan three weeks after one of her brothers died in a coal mining accident, she ran into three of his children begging local stores for food. After their father's death, the family ran out of money and had no means to obtain food and groceries. The youngest looked up at her and asked, quote, Aunt Molly, will you get us some food to eat? And the heartbreaking plea inspired her to compose Poor Miner's Farewell. As a, a miner's family was forgotten uh, after they was gone, and the condition of my brother's wife and them little children, and uh, and uh, I found myself as singing poor, hard-working miners. Their troubles are great. So often when mining, they meet their sad fate. Killed by some accident, no one can tell. Their mining's all over. Poor miners, farewell. And meaning my brother, I just yelled out, he was only a miner. My brother killed under the ground. Only a miner, and one more is gone. Killed by some accident, no one can tell. Poor hardworking miners, their troubles so great, so often while mining, they meet their sad fate. 
Killed by some accident, there's no one can tell. Their mining's all over. Poor miners, farewell. Only a miner, killed under the ground. Only a miner, but one more is gone. Only a miner, but one more is gone, leaving his wife and dear children alone. They leave their dear wives and little ones too, to earn them a living as all miners do. Killed by some accident, there's no one can tell. Their mining's all over. Poor miners, farewell. Leaving his children thrown out on the street, barefooted and ragged and nothing to eat. Mother is jobless. My father is dead. I am a poor orphan begging for bread. When I am in Kentucky, so often I meet poor coal miners' children out on the street. What are you doing? To them I have said. We are hungry, Aunt Molly, and we're begging for bread. Will you please help us get something to eat? We are ragged and hungry and thrown out on the street. Yes, I will help you, to them I have said, to beg for food and clothing. I will help you get bread. Aunt Molly Jackson was born Mary Magdalene Garland in 1880 in Clay County, Kentucky, which is directly northwest of Harlan. Her father, Oliver Garland, worked in the mines but brought home little to support the family. Consequently, her mother, Deborah, died of starvation in 1886. Stricken by the loss, her father became a union organizer with his young daughter, Molly, at his side. Molly accompanied her father to union meetings and strikes, and at 10 years old, she went to jail for her association with the union organizers. In 1884, she married a miner named Jim Stewart. The pair lived in Clay County and raised two children. She worked as a midwife in Clay County for 10 years before moving to Harlan. Aunt Molly and her husband moved to Harlan in 1908, where she continued to work as a midwife while he worked in the mines. In 1917, Jim Stewart died in a slate fall in the mines. Later, she remarried another miner named Bill Jackson. During the strike of 1931, Aunt Molly continued to work as a midwife, eventually delivering over 800 babies. Unfortunately, in a three-month period in 1931, 37 children died in her arms as she attempted to nurse them to health. She blamed cholera, famine, flux, stomach trouble, all brought on by undernourishment. Aunt Molly claimed that families that were out of work only received beans fried in lard from the Red Cross, if they received anything at all. The Red Cross did not provide parents with baby's milk or food products that an infant's stomach could easily digest. Twenty years later, she claimed she could, quote, still hear the hungry children cry. Meanwhile, separate mining accidents blinded her husband and brother, and another accident killed another one of her brothers. Her personal experience and heartache not only inspired her songs, but they also radicalized her political views. Communist group leader Theodore Dreiser, just back from a winter visit in the Soviet Union, took an interest in Aunt Molly in November of 1931. Dreiser saw individual testimonies from Harlan residents to develop the National Committee for Defense and Political Prisoners led by the Communist Party of the United States. After she provided the information above, Dreiser invited Aunt Molly to raise funds for miners across 38 states. The tour took her to New York City, where she was exposed to more members of the radical left. In this group, she met folk singers and song collectors like Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger, who learned and performed her songs. Like Reese, Aunt Molly's songs are founded on the events and devastation she witnessed in Clay and Harlan counties. Her experiences may seem extreme and individualized, but her work spoke to hundreds of wives and daughters suffering the same heartaches. 
For every woman who lost a father, brother, or son, the coal operators viewed him as only a miner with little to offer but his ability to serve the coal mining system. But to the women and children in his life, he was not only a miner. He was a father, a husband, a brother, a son, and his departure from the world left them to suffer at the hands of the coal operators. Sarah Ogan Gunning differs from the other two women because she did not start writing her songs until 1936, long after leaving Harlan. Stricken by heartbreak and suffering after her husband's death, she wrote, Come all you coal miners. Come all you coal miners, wherever you may be, and listen to a story that I'll relate to thee. My name is nothing extra, but the truth to you I'll tell. I am a coal miner's wife, I'm sure I wish you well. Coal mining is the most dangerous work in our land today. With plenty of dirty slaving work and very little pay, coal miner, won't you wake up? Then open your eyes and see what the dirty capitalist system is doing to you and me. They take your very life blood, they take our children's lives, take fathers away from children and husbands away from wives. Oh, minor, won't you organize wherever you may be? And make this a land of freedom for workers like you and me. Come all you coal miners, wherever you may be, and listen to a story that I relate to thee. My name is nothing extra, but to the truth to you I'll tell. I am a coal miner's wife. I'm sure I wish you well. I was born in old Kentucky in a coal camp born and bred. I know all about the pinto beans, bulldog gravy, and cornbread. And I know how the coal miners work and slave in the coal mines every day, for a dollar in a company store, for that is all they pay. Coal mining is the most dangerous work in our land today, with plenty of dirty slaving work and very little pay. Coal miner, won't you wake up and open your eyes and see what the dirty capitalist system is doing to you and me. They take your very lifeblood. They take children's lives. They take fathers away from children and husbands away from wives. Oh, minor, won't you organize wherever you may be and make this land of freedom for workers like you and me? Dear minor, they will slave you till you can't work no more. And what you'll get for your living but a dollar in the company store. A tumble-down shack to live in. Snow and rain pours in the top. You'll have to pay the company rent. Your dying never stops. I am a coal miner's wife. I'm sure I wish you well. Let's sink this capitalist system in the darkest pits of hell. Sarah Ogan Gunning was born in a coal camp in 1910, just west of Harlan County. Her father, Oliver Garland, worked in coal mines and joined workers' unions immediately after miners started to organize. He held union meetings in the family home, witnessed by his 15 children. Her mother brought traditional ballads, hymns, and love songs into the home, which influenced Ogan Gunning's love for singing. As a child, she, her brother Jim, and half-sister Molly, Aunt Molly Jackson, sang songs on their porch, drawing a crowd in their neighborhood. As a coal miner's daughter, she, in her own words, 
lacked personal amenities and formal education. So most of her perspectives came directly from the influence of her parents. At 15 years old, she met and fell in love with her first husband, miner Andrew Ogan, thus becoming a coal miner's wife in 1926. Ogan Gunning describes her life as a coal miner's daughter and wife in Kamalyu Coal Miners. She was born in a coal camp and survived on little resources. She watched as the coal miners performed slaving work for almost nothing. In her song, she establishes that they are the enemy as men are cut off from their families, leaving their wives and children to starve. She speaks directly to the audience, calling on coal miners and their wives to revolt against the capitalist system of which they slave. She claims that together... They can sink this capitalist system in the darkest pits of hell. By the time the strike hit in 1931, Andrew and Sarah Ogan had two children. The younger of the two, a baby girl, died of starvation. Sarah recounted the incident in her song, I Hate the Capitalist System. It goes, I had a blue-eyed baby, the darling of my heart. But from my little darling, her mother had to part. The rich and mighty capitalist dressed in jewels and silk, while my darling blue-eyed baby, she starved to death for milk. That is so sad. At first, Sarah Ogan was not affiliated with the NMU, nor did she ever publicly express any radical views. However, her husband Andrew and brother Jim worked in the mines and brought home the news of protest in the mines. The pair soon joined the MNU. Through their union affiliation, the pair was exposed to radical left views preached by the union leaders. In 1935, the Ogan family moved to New York City. Life in the city, however, did not fare much better for the family. They lived in a small apartment in the east part of the city. Her husband fell ill with tuberculosis, a disease common among the miners. While her husband lay dying, she wrote, Come all you coal miners. Ogan Gunning did not write the piece as a protest song. Instead, she wrote the piece as a reflection of her, quote, deepest feelings and sorrow. She is explicit and raw in her imagery, leaving little to the imagination. Her voice in her 1967 recording sounds hollow and dry as she reflects on the painful memory. Not all the folk songs that came out of Harlan County reflected the sentiment of Reese Jackson or Ogan Gunning. This piece, titled Harlan County Blues, written by a man named George Davis, shared a loose episodic account of a single event. Although his song is deeply personal, as it includes the names of the targeted union men, it contains a sense of sarcasm and humor. Whereas the women intensely shared their thoughts and observations, Davis attempts to make light of the situation. A bunch of fellers the other day over Harlan went... They told me about the fun they had, all the time in jail they spent. Most of the fellers were like me, who didn't go along. If you want the story, boys, just listen to this song. You didn't have to be drunk, they said. To get thrown in the can, the only thing you needed was just to be a union man. None of the boys did like it much. They said they'd treat it bad. They took their knives or pocketbooks or anything they had. They throwed Bill Wheeler in the can, With all his poison gases, he had no money to pay a fine, so they just took his glasses. Then Kelly said, you can't do this to me, when they came to get his name. The hell they can't, the jailer said. You're in here just the same. Walter, he's a funny chap. With me, you'll all agree. He wants someone to hold him whenever he gets on a spree. Delmos, he went down the street to a restaurant was bent. When two fellers picked him up, and to the jail he went. Put Bill Sheets in the jailhouse for reckless walking, so they say. 
They can't hold old Bill for that, because he always walks that way. Sam Ward went to the jailhouse, and the jailer twirled his keys. Sam said, Mr. Jailer, now won't you listen, please? Everything grew quiet, boys. You couldn't hear a sound. Turn him out, Sam Ward yelled, or I'll turn this jail around. When they all was freed again, you could hear them all take on. Just think of the fun that we'd missed if we hadn't come along. Then our president asked our vice, how'd you get along so well? And Taylor Cornette laughed and said, well, I was drunk as hell. Lord Baker went over there to dodge the jail he did. He said they all stayed out of jail. Lloyd Baker went over there to dodge the jail he did. He said they'd all stay out of jail if they kept their buttons hid. Now my song has ended, and I hope no one is sore. If there is, then please speak up, and I won't sing no more. With a bunch of fellas of the dead now or to Harlan went. They told me about the fun they had all the time in jail they spent. Well, most of the fellas were like me who didn't go along. But if you want their story, boys, just listen to this song. Well, you didn't have to be drunk. He claims the arrested crowd had, quote-unquote, fun in the jail, making it seem like their reasons for being in jail were trivial and frivolous. Davis claims that the men were only guilty because of their union affiliations. He does not discuss the strike, starvation, or violence that plagued the county. Even his tone of voice while singing is light and humorous, suggesting the event was not as devastating as the women make it out to be. Also, in contrast to his feminine counterparts, Davis does not mention anything about the effects the incident had on the women and children of the arrested men. Likewise, Jim Garland, brother of Ogan Gunning and half-brother of Jackson, wrote The Death of Harry Sims, a song that tells the story of a 19-year-old union organizer's death. Come and listen to my story. Come and listen to my song. I'll tell you of a hero that is now dead and gone. I'll tell you of a young boy. His age, it was 19. He was the bravest union man that I've ever seen. Harry Sims was a pal of mine. We labored side by side. Expecting to be shot on sight or taken for a ride by some life-stealing gun thug that roams from town to town to shoot and kill our union men, wherever they may be found. Harry Sims and I was parted at five o'clock that day. Be careful, my dear brother, to Harry, I did say. Now I must do my duty, was his reply to me. If I get killed by gun thugs, don't grieve after me. Harry Sims was walking up the track that bright, sunshiny day. He was of youth of courage, his steps light and gay. He did not know the gun thugs was hiding on the way to kill our brave hero on that bright, sunshiny day. Harry Sims was killed on Bush Creek in 1932. He organized the miners into the MMU. He gave his life in struggle. T'was all that he could do. He died for the Union. He died for me and you. The thugs can kill our leaders and cause us to shed tears, but they cannot kill our spirit if they tried a million years. We have learned our lesson now we all realize a union struggle must go on till we are organized. The song lays the event out quite clearly. Gun thugs killed Harry Sims as he walked home from work in 1932. Sims was born to a Jewish family in Connecticut, but moved to Kentucky to organize with the Communist Youth League and the NMU. Because of his kindness and courage, he won the respect of the NMU and their families and eventually served as a leader in the organization. A mine guard named Arlen Miller shot Sims in the abdomen and left him for dead. 
The next day, his body was found beside the train tracks, clear that he'd bled out. His body was sent back to New York City with a red flag draped over his coffin. Unlike Harlan County Blues, the death of Harry Sims speaks out to the devastation that took place in Harlan County. Jim Garland sought to immortalize the noble and heroic character of Sims. Again, the song is meaningful and significant, but it only shares the specific story of one Union man. The piece gives no mention to his direct family members or those he left behind. Despite the popularity of their songs among the folk circles in New York, Florence Reese, Aunt Molly Jackson, and Sarah Ogan Gunning died with nothing. They lived in poverty. Jackson and Ogan Gunning in New York and Reese in Tennessee. Leaders of the folk revival, like Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger, performed and recorded their songs and made a profit while doing so. Florence Reese, Aunt Molly Jackson, and Sarah Ogan Gunning's power to communicate organize, and inspire is known to few outside of the miners and their families. Even the two principal books used for this project, Which Side Are You On? by John Hevener and Only a Miner by Archie Green, phrases devised by Reese and Jackson respectively, neglect to discuss the women and their impacts in detail. Hevener's Which Side Are You On? examines Reese on two out of 216 pages. Likewise, Green discusses Jackson on 11 out of 500 pages. Their songs are more than rallying cries or catchy tunes. They represent an ignored narrative in a complex history. Their experiences reflect that of thousands of women that witnessed the devastation in Harlan. Husbands, fathers, and brothers suffered at the hands of the capitalist elite, while women and children starved. Florence Reese, Aunt Molly Jackson, and Sarah Ogan Gunning share with us their pain, opinions, and desires for all affected by the labor strike. Their songs reveal the powerful forces that drive the feminine spirit and the ability of women to demand change in an otherwise male-dominated movement. Thank you for letting me present my research to you, and thank you for listening. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Thanks so much um, for all of your support. If you're not yet a Patreon supporter, please head over to di- um, what is it? patreon.com <laughs> backslash digpodcast. Um, for show notes, transcripts, bibliographies of this episode and all of our episodes, head over to digpodcast.org. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, dig underscore history. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner-Masaryk, Sarah Hanley-Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Averill Earls. You can find show notes and further reading at digpodcast.org. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.